Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, what's going on this week? Well, last week, senators announced a bipartisan deal on infrastructure, and it contained about $300 billion in new and improved infrastructure projects. It includes $65 billion for increasing access to broadband, $47 for climate resiliency projects, roads, bridges, etc. It was a huge moment. And then uh, Biden was packing up to, to spend a long weekend in Camp David and relax and kind of on his way out, made a straight comment to reporters in which he implied that he would only support this bipartisan deal if it were tethered together with a much larger multi-trillion dollar deal through budget reconciliation. Mr. President, you said you uh, want both of these measures to come to you in tandem. I expect that in the, the coming months this summer, before count the the fiscal year is over that we will have voted on this bill as well the infrastructure bill as well as voted on the budget uh, uh, resolution and that's when they'll but if only one comes to me i'm not if if this is only thing that comes to me i'm not signing it's in tandem this was viewed as a gaffe and i think not and and i think it was viewed correctly as a gaffe because biden quickly walked it back uh, saying, you know, he, he he walked back this implied veto threat and said he would support the bill and he worked the phones all weekend. And it seems like they may have rescued the bipartisan deal. But what I want to talk about first is why even two bills in the first place, Jason? Why is there this bipartisan deal and this bu- budget reconciliation deal when Democrats could conceivably just vote for all of it in one package? They don't need Republican votes. Yeah, I don't fully understand that other than, you know, it is an attempt to do exactly what Biden had promised to do, which is try to unify as best he can on as many issues as possible. I also assume uh, that like all other things that happen right now, um, Joe Manchin is involved and that this is, you know, a nod to what Joe Manchin is after. Um, I'm sure that that's part of it. Uh, But, you know, it does allow you to have a bipartisan compromise and still get a lot of what you uh, wanted, which it, it's, it's it's interesting because what Biden was saying, I mean, it, you know, put aside the fact that uh, he, and I'm sure he is embarrassed about this, was implying that he would veto the thing he was there to celebrate making a deal about. Uh, <laughs> but what he was saying was, I think he was saying, hey, Democrats, like, I'm going to do this, but like, you got to do the thing we talked about. It was almost like he was talking to two separate audiences. You know, part of what's going on here is that 
there are two parts of politics here. There's, or actually even three. There's how do you keep uh, the Republicans on board for that? You need 10 Republicans in order to vote for this infrastructure, this this other part of the infrastructure outside of reconciliation. You need Mansion, Cinema, and those people to be happy because you need their support on reconciliation. And then I think, and this is part of what Biden was dealing with, you need to keep all Democrats in line. And there are a lot of Democrats, particularly on the left, like the further left you go, who are unhappy uh, with uh, the fact that Biden untethered the more popular roads and bridges, broadband, et cetera, they, people who untether that from, you know, some of what you call human infrastructure, you know, expansions of programs that might not have, you know, a physical component to it, but it just involves, you know, other goals that we have as a country. And so a lot of folks on the left felt like the only hope we have to pass the reconciliation bill is if it were combined. And so I think that's what Biden was getting at, but it seems like he gave McConnell what he needed in order to sow doubt within the Republican ranks about whether they want to go along with this bill because he demanded that Biden untether the two, which was confusing because I think Biden essentially already did that. What's McConnell's game here, Jason? You know, McConnell's move here is like he doesn't, he's been very open. He doesn't want to do anything that would in any way make it look like Biden was in any way successful, which, you know, is pretty sad, obviously, because that means he doesn't want to do anything that can make the country successful, like fixing roads and bridges, that kind of thing. So any possible thread that he can pull on that can bring down the entire deal, like he wants to do that. But what I think we can all take from this going forward is I actually think this should be an example that we cite often about Biden and about his approach when people are complaining about bipartisanship because and it's not it's not just the the making of the deal it's how he handled the gaffe i mean go backwards let's say that donald trump had done more than just declare infrastructure week over and over again but had actually proposed an infrastructure bill or even gone so far as president biden has to actually get a deal that is bipartisan on infrastructure if he had done that and then he had gone out and then he had made a gaffe Is there any universe in which we think that his ego would not have prevented him from going out and saying, I I was wrong in what I said, like in order to save the deal and actually get it done? There's no world in which that would happen. Not only that, his aides wouldn't have even been allowed to go out and imply that the way Biden's aides were. And then when that didn't work and Biden could see that, oh, I need to say something, Biden made a statement that very clearly said, look, I... I got that wrong. That's not what I meant to say. It's not what I it's not what I mean. It's it's not what I'm saying now. And then he got on the phone and personally talked to the senators involved. And he had to do all this in a big hurry because they were all going on the Sunday morning shows like imminently. And so then the next morning you have Romney and others on TV saying, you know, I think the temperature has been calmed down and we've all been basically given the right assurances in the last 24 hours by President Biden. Like that's a huge deal. And you have to actually care more about getting stuff done than looking good in order to achieve that. So I actually think this is something that you can use with your conservative leaning or your Biden skeptical friends and relatives for a long time to come. It's kind of a miracle in many ways. When I first read this, I freaked out and thought this dispute was done. But I think it it required a lot of people to defy our expectations of them. And and I think one of those people is Manchin so far. I don't I don't want to declare a premature victory here, but Manchin I think also did Biden a solid by saying that he would support uh, a second measure in reconciliation. He said it, it might not certainly won't be exactly what's on the table right now, but he very explicitly ruled in reconciliation, which I think helps Biden a lot with the left. And also 
takes the air out of this this conversation around whether Biden needs to have an implied veto threat because if Mansion and Cinema are on board with reconciliation. Biden doesn't have to threaten a veto because it's already then assumed that we have fifty votes in the Senate for a second bill. So all that you know, and we could put all that stuff aside, the inner workings of the Senate, and just say that Biden, so far, you know, like this is nothing supposed to, you know, is expected to be perfect, but we're on track for some form of major infrastructure bill over the summer. What are the implications of that, Jason? Well, let me also add to that though that. It should also give anybody hope about any other piece of legislation that people thought is never going to pass if it's only Democrats voting in favor. It doesn't mean that Manchin and Cinema are going to be ready to get rid of the filibuster, but it is notable that Manchin is saying, I recognize that putting this through reconciliation means it will not be bipartisan, and he is supporting it. Like that, that is a win. And, and it does, it does, you know, move the ball forward on some other things as well. What does it mean going forward? Like, look, I don't, I don't think that people get reelected by doing infrastructure by itself, but I do think that it, it is a really important moment for Biden and everybody else to be able to look back and go, okay, you can't say I didn't do anything that was bipartisan. Like this is a message for reelection for the midterms about, Hey, I worked and we got bipartisan agreement. It's not my fault that they wouldn't do the other things with me. It kind of reminds me of, you know, to use a baseball analogy, I coaching my my son's team, you know, and and when you first start playing baseball, like it takes a lot of getting used to the idea that you fail over and over again. That's how baseball is designed, right? And so when I'm working with like seven and eight-year-olds who like are beside themselves when they strike out, one of the things I always tell them is this, you know, this old baseball idiom that my hero George Brett used to talk about, which is just find one thing every game to help your team win. And once you do that, it takes the pressure off. Well, this is this is the one bipartisan thing. There are probably going to be more and there have been some others, but this is a big one. So like, in the future, when there's enormous pressure to how much bipartisan support are you going to get on guns? How much bipartisan support are you going to get on this? You now have this thing. You did this bipartisan thing, and it should take the pressure off in the next at bat, so to speak. In other news, Jason, we have some bad news on the COVID front. We have this Delta variant of COVID-19 spreading throughout the globe, triggering new lockdowns across the world, um, in particular in Australia, for example, where major cities like Sydney are forced into lockdown. Uh, But it's also spreading here in the United States. In the past seven days, we've seen a 17% increase in COVID-19 cases. And so we're heading in the wrong direction. And it's particularly pronounced in states that have low vaccination rates, including your state. And it seems like we're going to have pockets of spread throughout the United States. Potentially, this could last throughout a chunk of the summer, uh, if not longer, and so into doubt this summer of recovery that we have. Jason, what does all of this mean? Like, does did we celebrate prematurely? Probably. Can can I uh, like I don't fully understand this. Help me understand, and probably a bunch of the listeners. So, okay, my understanding is that if you are vaccinated, so far there's no evidence that you are susceptible to the Delta variant, right? If you're if you have the the dual dose vaccination, based on the preliminary data we have right now, uh, I think that they're still looking into the J and J vaccine, but there's no adverse data so far that I've read. But this is a more deadly and and more contagious uh, variant. And I think it's particularly a problem if you're unvaccinated or if you have one of the two doses, if you're on a two-dose regimen based on the data right now. All right. So 
from what I've read, there's also the concern that if it is allowed to spread and if it is not contained, that it could then mutate. And then we're looking at a virus that could be resistant to the vaccine. The Delta variant is a mutation, so it keeps mutating, right? right? You know, we have we've had so many we've had a, quite a few variants already this past year. And so it's going to continue to mutate. The question is, does it get to the point in, in the near future where it mutates beyond our capacity to resist it with our vaccine doses? And and is there a lower threshold with J&J than the double doses, et cetera? I think we have we don't have reason to think that we're at that point yet, but we do know that this is becoming the dominant variant in places like Britain, for example, um, where it's it, you know, from what we're reading, it is accounting for the majority of cases in that country. And it's particularly falling on the shoulders of people who are unvaccinated or undervaccinated. It seems like we're going to have a summer where potentially there are pockets of spread. And part of what I'm trying to figure out, and maybe you could help us with, is like, what does that mean for our politics? So to me, what it means, and this is maybe sort of a drastic thing, is I personally, I don't think it means we should lock back down which I know they're doing in some countries, um, but those countries have much lower vaccination rates. Yeah, Australia, very low, but yeah, super low vaccination rates. So I don't think we should do that, but I do think it would be reasonable to remain at the same level of openness and start requiring that people show proof of vaccination. I mean, I say that maybe with some level of hypocrisy, like we just did a live show here in Kansas City last week. We didn't require proof of vaccination, but perhaps we should have. And so- and going forward, I think we would, uh, you know, knowing this and, and so long as the Delta variant, any variant situation is a threat. So I would just say, like, to me, that that should be where the conversation is. Yeah. Uh, and my, my big feeling here is that if we're going to have a new round of restrictions, which it seems like they're creeping in again, you know, I think L.A. starting to at least advise that restaurants require masks indoors again, which, you know, could make sense based on their spread, which I think is more aggressive than a lot of other cities around the country. We at least need to be sensible. So no more of these beach lockdowns, park closings, outdoor mask mandates. I also think that we need to think carefully about like if you're going to use a vaccine passport, how are you going to use it? So a good example was the the Brooklyn Nets game that I went to. They, they had a vaccine only section. Where we, where we were grouped together. And it made sense in the sense that we were allowed to take our masks off and other sections weren't. There's a part of me, though, that's like, well, if there's a version of that, that would be insane. Like, let's say it's, the, it's, it's another context where all vaccinated people sit together and then all unvaccinated people sit together and nobody's wearing masks, which I think could be the like a logical result of this. Then we're actually grouping together the most contagious people together, which also would be problematic. So I just want us to get this right, uh, because we didn't get it right last time. I think everybody can admit that. So I just want a sensible part two of this, like understanding that let's visualize it like there could be some disappointing months ahead where people have to start canceling plans, depending on where you're going and who you're doing it with. But at least let's be measured and precise and and science-based in how we do it. Both because it's the sensible thing to do, but it's also the the politically smart thing to do in a world where our mistakes are amplified by a right wing that will make us pay for it. Ultimately, in order to encourage people who have not been vaccinated to get vaccinated, rather than restrict things for everybody, 
we should set society up to reward the people who have done what they need to do to protect everybody else, which is get vaccinated. Like, I just think that that's how we ought to think about it. Today's episode of Majority 54 is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. When you sign up with BetterHelp, their team will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 48 hours, which is, by the way, a really big deal. Like when somebody decides to reach out and talk to a counselor, it's super important that they get the opportunity to do that quickly. And so I really appreciate this part of the service. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors who specialize in anything you need from depression and anxiety to grief and stress. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And you can even read client testimonials posted daily on their site. And it wants you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com M54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash M54. So look, if you're like me, you had some great foreign language teachers in middle school and high school, but didn't necessarily pay a lot of attention, weren't as diligent as you should have been. I have a lot of regrets about that time. You know, I had a lot of Italian instruction, but I can't speak Italian today. But one of our sponsors, Babbel, is helping me get back on track. Babbel is the number one selling language learning app and it's addictively fun and easy to use. What I really love about their lessons is that they use so many different modes of learning. So you can listen to a conversation and answer questions about it. It's real life situations where they're mixing in structured learning so that when you go travel to whatever country or having a conversation with the person in your life who speaks that language, that you could actually apply it in a real way. So I love this app. Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts, and their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54 for an extra three months free. Babbel, language for life. All right. Well, our final topic for this segment is a big one and one that we've been hearing about a lot throughout the course of the year. And we've had a lot of people asking us to cover it. And this is this question of critical race theory. Jason, what is this controversy around critical race theory? And what does the term even mean? First of all, I'm almost hesitant to try to describe it because there has been so there have been so many different descriptions of it. I mean, it's actually been around for quite a long time, combined with the way that it has been misconstrued by the right, uh, that no matter how I describe it, there's going to be somebody either on the right or the left or whatever, who's going to take exception to it. So I'll just, I'll do my best and say that it's, it is an approach that says, look, when we look at US law, and we look at, at how things have developed in the United States and the the legal structures in the United States, we we have to actually look at it in the way that it intersects with race throughout our history. So we can't just say, oh, for instance, it was okay to segregate based on race, and then it wasn't okay to segregate based on race and pretend that everything was fixed. We still have to look at the way law intersects with race in our in our society and the way that it has historically intersected with it. You know, I mean, look, basically, it is 
teaching things, initially law, but you know, you can expand it to history in general, and not ignoring the role that race has played in America. Like, I mean, to me, it's it's that simple. Now, there, it, it's much more complicated than that in, in a variety of different ways. But to me, the easiest way to explain it is, it's not pretending that we're a race-blind society. It's acknowledging the fact that race has had a lot to do with a lot of American history. Right. I feel like it's such an important conversation, both because of the salience of it politically, but also because of what it means for our everyday life. Like, what do we teach our children at schools? What kind of trainings do we have within organizations and companies to help people truly understand each other better and treat each other better? But I actually think that there's a there's a healthy debate that we should be having about some of these issues. But we're, we're of course, in America in 2021, we're having the least healthy version of this. There's a great, I think it's Benjamin Wallace Wells article in The New Yorker where he tracks why this became a particular controversy today. And he follows this guy, Christopher Rufo, who's a conservative activist who basically sensed an opportunity here and said, all right, there was this this term of art, critical race theory, that was actually really prominent in the 90s by a bunch of legal scholars. And, and like you talked about, it was this question of, they were saying, and it was like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and people like that who were like, the question of race is not just about private prejudice or even group prejudice. It's about also structural disadvantages in our country. And they had a whole scholarship around that. And this guy, Christopher Rufo, this conservative activist, then started to say, all right, I can group this together with a bunch of other things, call it critical race theory because he liked just how jargony it sounded and threatening it felt, and really blow it out to be a threatening menace for the kinds of voters that we need. And he was totally right. Like it is, it is a very effective narrative for the right. And here's why. There's like a continuum of on the far right, we have white supremacists, and then you have small C conservatives who kind of want a colorblind society. You have like traditional liberals. I would say like the Obama mold is, is this group of people who are kind of like, there are structural disadvantages, there's racism, and we need to take that into account when we're making government policy and even when we're running organizations. And so that's a group of people that would support things like affirmative action, for example. And then there's a far left ideology that I think the right is having a really fun time with, which is people like Robin D'Angelo who want to say that there's like this totalizing experience of being whatever race you are, in particular if you're white, and it is something that we need to put front and center of every single discussion we have, whether it's a math lesson, a social studies lesson, or um, a feedback meeting in a company. And I think that's the harder sell, and that's what the right wing is having a really good time with right now. And not only is it the harder sell, it appears to me not to be what is mostly being considered in any schools that are actually teaching in some form or fashion critical race theory. From what I can tell, it's taught as a theory. Where it's taught, it's like, okay, here's another way to look at this. From what I can tell, it's not like where there are Spanish immersion schools, there are also critical race theory schools where like, you know, if it's a Spanish immersion school, like you learn math in Spanish. Like, I don't think that there are schools that are like, we're going to every day, everything we do is critical race theory. I, I'm not aware of that. Maybe it exists. But that's definitely how the right is painting this issue. In further examination, I feel like it's creeping into the discussion. And there have been a lot of great writers like Matthew Iglesias, who've written about this. There was a piece in New York Times about this the other day. It's getting there. So for example, there was uh, a New York Post, and I, I hate to 
to to give them credit for anything. But they they wrote an article, uh, I think it was a year or two ago, about Richard Carranza, the head of New York City school system, using the set of teaching resources from I think it was either Judith Katz or Tamo Okun. He was training administrators and he was using a slide deck that I think follows on the sort of Robin DiAngelo model. So this is what the slide said. These are things that they say is white supremacy or examples of white supremacy culture. Perfectionism, sense of urgency, defensiveness, quantity over quality, individualism, objectivity, you know, you can go on. And I started to search through this and there's tons of examples like this across the country, including major organizations. The NEA has been pushing this curriculum. Here's where I get worried about this as a former educator is like if you teach teachers and principals that they're, that a sense of urgency is white supremacy, then you're harming those kids uh, in their ability to go out into the workforce or as parents or anybody else who's responding to a problem and wanting to put a lot of energy and attention to it. Or if you teach them that punctuality, which is another one of the examples, is white supremacy, then you're teaching them to be unemployable or poor spouses. What I find interesting, though, is like most of the people I just mentioned, like the Robin D'Angelo's and the Judas Cats, et cetera, are not people of color, right? So, you know, you're, you're, mm. you're in a setting like, you know, in my, my former school that I was running. And if I told a parent that I, was, that I was afraid to teach their kid to be punctual or about the written word, like being important or like the primacy of data, for example, in our instruction, they would pull their kid out of my school immediately, mm-hmm. right? Uh, like they're not asking for that or at least the people I worked with weren't. It just seems like an ideology grafted onto the race discussion about how organizations should function or how people should be managed that seems to have like at best a tangential relationship to race. And that's where I think the right wing is salivating at this conversation. And and I think as they see it growing throughout this country, even if it's still a small problem, they sense an opportunity. Yeah, I also think we have to keep in mind that they are not having discussions about this at this level, right? Like you and I can talk about this. And, and what our concern is, is that if you call punctuality white supremacy, there's the concerns that you just raised. There's also the possibility that you are so commonly using the term white supremacy that now it has no meaning. And right. and, and now it you can't really hunt it and, and take seriously the possibility of, of trying to root it out in, in the system. That's an issue that I don't think they're concerned with at all. And on top of that, they don't want to talk about it at this level of detail. They want to take everything and 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 just like plop it into this, any mention of race. I mean, they want to take like voter suppression and say, well, now, now you're just trying to teach our kids critical race theory. It's like, right. no, we're, we're actually just want a discussion of current events and the fact that you're trying to keep black people from voting. They want to make it. And this is, by the way, a very white supremacist approach, they want to make it where mentioning race or acknowledging race is not okay. That's obviously their goal. And we should not, we should not allow that. Right. Yeah. And this is where, this is why I think we need a healthy debate, right? There are things that we as a society need, like punctuality. We need objectivity, right? Nobody would want a attack on objectivity more than Donald Trump, for example. And those things are not white or black right now can i can i say though by the way i can i can imagine i can understand the rationale right at a purely academic level where it's kind of useful in the academic setting only i can understand where you can take some of those things where you can say objectivity could be white supremacist i get it because in our in our society most of the people who are deciding whether something is objectively the case are white i get where you can say punctuality where 
people of color are far more likely to have to rely on public transportation than have their own transportation. Like I totally, I, I, because there'll be people listening to this who will take exception to what we're saying. And I just want to say, like, I do understand that. I think we both do. But realistically, when you're talking about teaching kids at some level, that can be confusing. And it doesn't, it doesn't prevent you from teaching that race is a big part of, of our history and is like, largely the part of our history and explains so many of our mistakes as a people. But here on the other side, to make your point, you know, for example, Florida just barred public schools from teaching, and this is their quote, American history is something other than the creation of a new nation based largely on universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that is now, some bullshit right there. Yeah, like- right. That is the only thing you could do is that we are only allowed to teach American history based on the principles that it was founded on the principles of the Declaration of Independence. You know, n- never mind that this was a slaveholding country, right? Never mind the fact that nearly one in five slaves during the American Revolution escaped and attempted to s- seek safe harbor in Britain. Never mind the fact that once Britain was untethered from the United States, they were also untethered with a significant portion of their slaveholding population. And somehow the debate around slavery in Britain changed overnight, right? Never mind that a lot of our founding fathers, including some of the most prominent ones, held slaves. Including the one who wrote the Declaration of Independence. Right. And so, Jason, this seems more of an issue to me, right? <laughs> I, I, I do. Like, I, I, I just described, and I'm sure a lot of people will get mad at me, like my view as an educator about the perniciousness of Robin D'Angelo and people like this. And that's an issue. But I think I state... Like including a state run by a front runner for president of the United States, the states that that educates millions and millions of people, telling people there is only one way you could teach American history, and it's based on a principle, not not the facts of life at the founding of our country. That seems like an issue. I I would go bigger and say it seems like an issue for politicians to tell us what American history is, um, because every because everything that politicians do is soaked in the politics of that moment. I mean, go back to, you know, under God being put into the Pledge of Allegiance, right? I mean, everything that politicians do is soaked in the politics of that moment. And so if politicians are going to be in charge of what American history is, instead of like historians or teachers, uh, particularly when you're talking about teaching American history, I I think that that is a dangerous thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think this gets to the point of I've been thinking a lot about the question we had from the teacher at our live event last week. And, and, I, and I thought about my answer I gave, and I think it was incomplete. And I was thinking about reconstruction. It's the least understood part of our entire country. I totally agree. Uh, our history. And it's, I think there's this sense among a lot of people that I think are well-intentioned who don't understand what happened in reconstruction and the fact that we did not, quote unquote, free the slaves and everything was great. We fought quality every step of the way in ways that had significant consequences for life or death and human flourishing that are playing out until this day. And and I think that is not to say that America is a racist country or is, or is a benign country. It's a complicated history. We can't take the good and not the bad. Reconstruction is a perfect example because it is a moment in America. It is, it is one of a very few crossroads, true crossroads in American history where we had an opportunity to be one country or the other. And we frankly chose poorly. I mean, it, when when Reconstruction began, it there were there were black members of Congress. There were you know there were all sorts of things happening, and there was an immediate backlash. It was like oh 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 we did we didn't actually mean for this to happen, 
so that is a that is a moment in our history that not many people know about and you can't teach american history without making it clear that like we had an opportunity we had a moment and we did not meet that moment it doesn't mean you hate america it means you want to meet the next moment right well here's another example from your home state right and this was featured in time magazine there was a mother who was worried about the discussion of identity in her son's ninth grade classroom. And the example that she showed the reporter was an English assignment that asked, and here's a quote from the assignment, that asked the student to reflect on, quote, assumptions that people make about people in the different groups you belong to. And I'll read that again. Assumptions that people make about people in the different groups you belong to. Now, hopefully I've established some credibility from those of you who are worried about overreach here. There's nothing wrong with this assignment. It's saying, like, just reflect on who you are and talk about it. How do people view you, right? And maybe if you share how people view you and then you have students who are different than you in your class and they describe how people view them, maybe we reach a point of greater understanding and humanity. Maybe that's the key here, right? Yeah. And this is a parent who's alarmed by this assignment. Perhaps there's more context to this. I don't know. But without more context, like, that question could have been, like, how do people view you and your friends in the band or on the baseball team or on the debate team or, you know, maybe there's more context that explains it, but if not, then yeah, I agree with you. So I think like my point about this whole thing is for, for listeners is that as Michelle Goldberg said, in the New York times, you don't have to be anti anti critical race theory, right? You can be suspicious of people like Christopher Rufo, who's written about in that New Yorker article and, and Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump exploiting this issue. You could be pro academic freedom in our K-12 system, where teachers should be free to, to teach a holistic view of the United States, where we actually center the good and the bad of our history, and we're not afraid to talk about some of the horrible things that happen in our country. And we're also not afraid to talk about some of the great things about our country. And we can pair the ideals of the Declaration of Independence with the reality and also pair it with an ever-evolving story that hopefully has been getting better over time. I truly believe it has. But you could also pair that with a sense that there's some things happening out there that you don't have to agree with that are happening on the left. And just because Tucker Carlson attacks you know, Robin DiAngelo or Judith Katz or somebody like that, you don't have to reflexively defend them. It just goes back to what we always say, which is, question the motives of the person doing that, right? Like you just say, hey, I get what you're saying. And Tucker Carlson perhaps is using the most extreme example to paint people like me who just think it's important that we teach Reconstruction the way it actually happened to paint us as bad. And and why do you think he might want to do that? Why do you think that might contribute to the societal aims that he and all the other corporate folks at Fox have? For this week in misinformation, you may remember a couple weeks ago, we were on the subject of QAnon and uh, the name Lucas Hartwell came up. Uh, Lucas Hartwell uh, is a high school student in Michigan who uh, has challenged, uh, taken on and, and called out a member of, the, of a local school board for being a member of QAnon. And we said, hey, if you know Lucas Hartwell and you're listening to this, we'd love to have him on the show. And then I got this great direct message on Twitter from Lucas Hartwell, who was like, hey, like a lot of people have reached out to me and said I should contact you. And so we talked with Lucas Hartwell. And here's that conversation. Well, Lucas Hartwell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Well, Lucas, we read about you in Time Magazine, and we were blown away uh, by your story. And so uh, we just wanted to, to learn a little bit about who you are and, and the fight that you've been battling out there in Michigan. 
you live in a town called, is it Grand Blanc or Grand Blanc? Well, it should be Grand Blanc, but we call it Grand Blanc over there. <laughs> All right, Grand Blanc, I guess kind of like Gross Point Blank, right? Like the 80s movie? Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, so what is this town? So how many people live in your town? And how did you come on the radar of Time Magazine? Well, essentially, we have about 10,000 people living in Grand Blanc. We're a suburb of Flint, a very diverse community for what it is. And we had our recent local school board elections uh, on the 6th of November. It brought about a good amount of potential candidates, and it was also the first election I was able to vote in. And just to pause there for a second, so you're a senior, right? Or you just graduate, you must have just graduated, I think, right? Yes, sir. I just graduated um, just a few weeks ago, actually. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So I was kind of snooping around, learning about the candidates. We, we mostly have mostly moderates running, very into what they believe is, you know, a, a good and solid education system, uh, sort of tradition of excellence is what our school district abides by. But looking into it, reading into the candidates, their little blurbs in a local newspaper, I noticed that we had a candidate named Amy Facinello, who her little blurb, rather than focusing on improvements in the school district, things that were actually related to education, it was more about the 1619 project, which I wasn't really familiar with, which is now in the news you know, quite often since it's part of the whole critical race theory debate in schools. But at that time, I didn't know anything about it. You know, we didn't even teach the 1619 Project in our schools. And she was pretty vehemently attacking it in the newspaper. Uh, And that was really her whole entire campaign. Uh, So looking at her social media, which was the first thing I thought, I wanted to learn a little bit more about her positions. I mean, let's pause there for a second just to get a sense of who you are. Because, you know, I was a school principal. Jason's a parent. I was a kid. I didn't read blurbs about school board candidates in the newspaper. So are you just a big political nerd or is this just a more, is the school board more prominent in your town than it is anywhere else? I'm more of a big political nerd. Uh, Going into my first election, the first one I can vote in anyways, I found it, you know, it's always your civic duty to research the candidates, or at least that's the value that uh, my dad sort of always tried to instill in me. Uh, So I was really excited. I've always looked forward to being able to vote. So that was just the only reason I was sort of snooping around with the little blurbs and figuring out even the local politicians. So you you saw this blurb about the 1619 Project, and then you checked out her social media. What did you see? It was uh, pretty dark for the most part. There wasn't a whole lot of information on Facebook. But then I came across her Twitter. And going deeper and deeper, I think it started with some of her followers and who she was following. A lot of accounts related to Michael Flynn, a lot with the queue or where we, where one of us go, we go all. That's Jason's favorite uh, slogan, I think. Right? <laughs> yeah, I just think it's like the weakest political slogan ever. Did you, at this point, like you were already familiar with QAnon, you knew what it was? I was. And the only reason I was really familiar with it was because among my friends and I, we'd sort of look at it and it was more laughable than anything else. It was never something I expected to encounter in public, uh, let alone, you know, in my own community. Uh, So I was familiar with some of the call signs and whatever, uh, some of the slogans. 
So I dug a little bit deeper into her account, and it became pretty apparent that she was a, a strong, strong believer in QAnon. And a lot of the more outlandish, outrageous conspiracies that it promotes. And that was really disturbing for me. And this was probably a day before people could actually cast their votes. So what are some of those views that that either you saw on her account or you're just generally aware of QAnon that make you alarmed as a student uh, in a district um, that would be run in part by somebody who believes those? Well, I think one of the most outrageous things that I saw in there was a tweet and it was about George Floyd. You know, this was following the summer. It was right out of the Black Lives Matter protests that were all across the nation. And uh, it was fresh in everybody's mind. And she tweeted that George Floyd was a government psyop and that um, his death wasn't real. That was probably... She, like, she didn't like retweet that. She like tweeted that. She tweeted herself. She Ooh. wrote that word for word. So that was probably the most upsetting thing that grabbed my attention immediately. Because all the other things, anti-masking, just really typical, not necessarily insane things, uh, they're, they're pretty out there, but they're not absolutely just off the ledge. Yeah, like that other stuff is like stuff like if you were at a social gathering and somebody said that other stuff, you'd be like, ooh, I don't think I want to go any deeper with this conversation. But you wouldn't like, you wouldn't be completely freaked out. But like the PSYOP agent thing. That's a special kind of crazy. Yeah, that's that's how I felt about it. When you believe that the government is orchestrating events, you know, like this, that you're completely discounting essentially the death of an innocent person and using it to just fuel these crazy conspiracies. That was the point where I really started to take this very, very seriously. We shouldn't have anyone in a position of education making decisions like this who has that rationale. Uh, that train of thought, because I mean, I I can't even explain. You know, it's such a such a dangerous game to play. Well, all right. So you're on the cusp of people voting, and what did you do? Well, I threw together a lot of her tweets and made sort of a thread on Twitter showcasing her more crazy beliefs, because it was my genuine belief that nobody else knew about them. It it had sort of gone overlooked. Uh, she'd gotten into some Facebook arguments, but that was it. So once people started to take notice of this, it kind of took off a little bit, um, some older folks in our community, some younger folks. But in the end, she was the one who won the position, uh, which was the most tragic thing. I think if it would have gotten caught earlier on, there's no way she would have won in our community. Uh, so we had a lot of Republicans and Democrats reach out to me and they said, you know, I wasn't really familiar with the campaign she was running. If I would have known this, I wouldn't have voted for her whatsoever. And she did do a very strong campaign, but she essentially hid this from the public. Uh, this is by no means something she had out in the open other than on her Twitter. And I think she very deliberately hid that, too. So what did you do next? Is that when you went to the school board meeting? Yes, um, I took it up at a school board meeting, actually the one she was uh, sworn in at. And uh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> This call, I mean, there was probably about 500 people on it because it was the meeting where we discussed reopening schools. So I knew I had a little bit of a platform and a stage where I could make my statement. And uh, it went fairly well. Um, Lucas, we're going to unmute you. And, and you have three minutes. Ma'am. Hello, my name is Lucas Arthur Hartwell. 
My question is specifically for the new board member, Mrs. Facinello. Uh, recently, after reviewing your Twitter account and the content you post, it has become apparent to me that you are a fervent believer in the QAnon conspiracy, a far-right conspiracy that the FBI has identified as a strong threat of domestic terrorism, a threat that was proven valid on the 6th as a tremendous amount of QAnon believers and supporters flooded into Washington, D.C. On your Twitter, you claim that George Floyd was not a real person and his death was a psychological operation orchestrated by the government and also claimed coronavirus to be a hoax in its entirety. You also promoted content that claimed anyone of the Muslim faith to be, and these are not my words, subhuman and a cancer to our nation, which is extremely disturbing to me. My entire life has been spent at Grand Blanc Community Schools, and I believe it to be a wonderful, diverse array of students as well as faculty, people who are honest, hardworking, and above all, kind-hearted. I would like to ask how you plan on representing such a diverse array of students and even faculty when it seems you represent none of the values we stand for as a community, or even more importantly, as Americans. I didn't get a huge response from anyone on the board, but as it would turn out later on, they aren't allowed to comment back to public comment. Uh, so it went without, you know, saying much. I, I made my point. I just want to pause and also say as somebody who's attended a lot of school board meetings in my life in the city of Nashville, which is a huge city, that 500 people at a school board, even if it's on Zoom, for that small oh, town yeah. is remarkable. So this is an engaged town. I'm not sure I've ever attended one. I probably have, but like, and I'm pretty involved. Okay, so you put it on blast. What happens next? Well, I get a lot of outreach from the community, from teachers, from parents, but essentially nobody has any interest in doing anything about this. It was a little bit disheartening at first, and then months tick by, weeks go by. I think it was April that I got a message from a journalist with Time Magazine, Vera, Vera Gruen. She's a political correspondent with Time. She said, hey, somehow I figured out, you know, you went on your Zoom meeting. I saw your, your tweet. Uh, would you be interested in being in this article for Time? It's about QAnon and local positions of power. And I wasn't even familiar that this was an issue nationally. It's really taking off. These people are becoming very coordinated uh, when it comes to infiltrating local forms of government. I mean, I thought we were sort of by ourselves in this. Uh, so I was thrilled. I thought I was probably going to be a little bit of a blurb, um, maybe one paragraph, something like that. And uh, as it turned out, it was a pretty significant amount of the article. And uh, after then, our community really took notice. Um, people who didn't attend school board meetings weren't active on Facebook, Twitter, uh, whatever it would be. I mean, they've all been learning about this, and it's only continued from there because we've been featured on CNN all the way to channels like NHK in Japan, uh, their national broadcasting service. So this is something that's, I mean, it's blown up, and I can't even explain how significant that's been. What, what is Amy Fitchinall's response been to all this? She actually said she's not familiar with Q at all um, to one journalist. <laughs> Uh, she said she doesn't recall posting anything that she said. But then you look on the Facebook side of it. Uh, she has these community pages that she's on. I mean, every town or city has them. 
but she doesn't really make the connection, I guess, that people can see what she posts there because she's still on about, you know, vaccinations are killing people, uh, this, that, and whatever. And she's still making these outrageous statements. How much power does she have as an individual school board member? Like how many people are on the school board? We have seven members of our school board. She really doesn't have a lot of power on it. Unless there's a unless there's a close vote. I mean, right? right. I mean, if there's she can be the deciding vote in a four three situation. That's pretty serious. Yeah, it is. But really the main concern for the people in Grand Blank is the fact that she's using this, you know, her position on the school board now to promote this. Her aspirations are not just to stay on the school board. And she's made that very clear. She said it openly at school board meetings. She said, I've had a lot of people contact me. They want me to run for a higher office from now. Um, So at the moment, making certain that everybody in our community and surrounding communities understands her real positions and her real views on subjects, that's pretty crucial to stopping what could potentially uh, be a campaign by her for higher office in the future. So is that your primary goal right now is is not to recall her, not to exact any consequences uh, on her as a school board member, but to prevent her from going on to do bigger things? I would say it's one of the goals. There's already an organization of concerned parents, teachers, and um, other members of the community and surrounding communities uh, who have organized a Facebook page for her recall. And she has violated a lot of the rules that um, school board members are to abide by, you know, such as social media use properly. And there's a great amount of irony in the fact that uh, a school board member who is supposed to stand against bullying in the school district, you know, and in schools, uh, goes online and picks on people pretty much all day. What would it take to recall a school board member? And, And how long are the terms for the school board? The terms for the school board are six years. Oh, my, so, God. Yeah, oh my God. You're looking at a lot oh there. Um, to get her recalled, I believe you need between 2,500 to 3,000 signatures of registered voters in Grand Blanc Township and City, uh, which seems like a very daunting task. But when you consider that we have very strong bipartisan support for her recall, there's very few people in her own party who support her. I think it can be done relatively easily. We probably have listeners there. What is the website where people can either you know sign up if they're a registered voter in Grand Blank or if they want to make a donation to this effort, where do people go? You're going to be headed to the Recall Amy Facinello, uh Facebook page. And if you take a look at that, you know you can request to be a part of it. And we really welcome any support from anywhere in the nation. We've been appreciative of letters, emails, phone calls we've received from as far away as Germany, England, even Italy, South Africa. It's, it's been a very uh, unique situation where because of the coverage we've gotten, we've received support from everywhere. And that's something that really keeps us motivated to keep doing what we're doing. Real quick, how do you spell her last name? Because there's somebody out there right now who's like wants to write that down so they can get to the right place on Facebook. It's Amy Facinello, F-A-C-C-H-I-N-E-L-L-O. Well, so I'm fascinated by your story here. So you, you know, you just graduated. What are you doing next? And can we enlist you to continue fighting this and helping to build a network of people like you? Because I imagine you now know a lot about 
the infrastructure we have to fight these battles because it's happening all over the country you know the las vegas school board you know the u.s congress the presidency you know there are people all over this country who are making similar discoveries how do we create a sense of scale and infrastructure so that we can battle this sort of hidden infrastructure that they have that is you know frustrating so many people like you around the country well it's certainly a complex situation where when we look at it we're faced with the idea that you know each community is different but we do have similar ideas you know america is such a, a beautiful mosaic in some senses but in other senses it creates communities where one plan doesn't work for all of them but as long as you have people in those communities who are dedicated to organizing who are interested in reaching out beyond party lines to fix these situations where oftentimes people go into them and they view them as just a issue of you know democrats versus republicans conservatives versus uh, liberals the new versus the old but you would be amazed by how many republicans how many independents we've had reach out to us and it just takes the first step of being able to say is this what you want representing your party is this what you want representing your community and making certain that they understand that this is an issue that affects everyone and it's not a party thing qanon is so much bigger than just a black and white issue. This is something that's tearing families apart. It's tearing communities apart, and we need to stop it as soon as it starts. And I think this is the first key in creating a country that's sort of more unified. Uh, we've got a lot going on across our whole nation and communities and cities, states. And I think getting rid of these conspiracists, you know, and there are a lot of them, is a big step forward towards that. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, certainly. And thank you very much for having me. For Grabinor, uh, look, get involved in the recall of Amy Facinello. Why not? I, I agree with Lucas. Uh, Robbie agrees with Lucas. Like, it makes a difference to stop this stuff uh, as early as you possibly can and see if you can help. If you're in Michigan or if you're in Grand Blank, Michigan, especially, go to Facebook and look for Recall Amy Facinello. That, again, is spelled F-A-C-C-H-I-N-E-L-L-O. I mean, why not? Why not zero in on a school board potential recall in Michigan? That sounds like fun. Let's do that. We did the live show last week and we took questions in person, which was great, which was like having a whole bunch of voicemails in a row. So if you have an issue that you want to hear more about, if you have an argument that you've been having trouble winning with somebody in your life, or if there's just something you're curious about, perhaps like the guy last week, you want to ask questions about Ravi's apartment. It doesn't really matter. Leave us a voicemail and we'll we'll actually answer it. We'll answer it on the air. 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. I'm always saying, hey, if you go to Instagram right now, here's what you'll see. Well, if you go now, you will see that a week ago, we were all actually together in person. And, you know, if you're one of those people who's like, I wonder what these people actually look like who I listen to all the time, you might find that interesting. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander.
Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.